Okay, well that was necessary. Uh, that was a nice little dab of some berry white. Uh, some CO2 oil from our farm here. Smooth sailing cannabis. Just some, just some in-house stuff. Uh, hello, everyone. Friends, welcome back. This is episode 49 of the Baked and Awake podcast. We're sitting down today, just a day after publication of episode 48, which was entitled, America's Kill List is Real, Part 1. Such a heavy story, such a serious story, such a long-form journalistic uh, piece, such as what we selected here to explore together in the form of the Rolling Stone story uh, from Matt Tybee, uh, is one that, you know, as I began to treat it, once I hit record on the podcast and did what normally would be, you know, a casual, you know, light reading, paraphrasing, and, and you know, sharing of the highlights of a story, um, it became really apparent to me that I had a sense of responsibility for consuming the content in the way we were to fully share the full story, read all the nuance that was brought to it by the author, and do what we could to not only do it justice, but fully understand it, right? So here we are. We're coming back. We made it about halfway through that uh, article, two-thirds of the way through on our last episode. We're going to jump back in. We're going to jump right in. Um, And then when we get finished with that, we're going to roll into a couple of follow-up stories that eh, bear some bear some sort of relationship to other running themes that we explore here on the podcast all the time. So, all right. I thank you all for joining me again so soon. I hope this is when it hits your inboxes. It's welcome and you're ready to uh, continue taking this admittedly harrowing journey with us. So hence, that's why my uh, dab at the outset of the episode was definitely most necessary. We left off the last few lines of the story yesterday, talking about ex gratia payments. These are payments made very quietly, never very publicly by the, in this case, U.S. government um, to uh, pay to families of people who, it turns out, were victims of U.S. attacks. Whether they're drone strikes or any other form of interdiction, you know, direct action, lethal force uh, used in an area, you know, traditional conventional aircraft bombing, right? We have helicopters, we have ground troops that go everywhere and and go places and are sent on missions all the time based on, as we're understanding from this story, in many cases, metadata. We're talking about signature strikes. 
We're talking about ex gratia payments for signature strikes, which are um, actions taken against individuals who meet a certain threshold of behaviors, actions, locations, relationships um, that have been, you know, assessed beforehand through whatever means to, while they may not individually constitute uh, an indication of guilt or an indication of a intent to cause harm uh, or to work against the interests of, you know, again, North America, America, the United States. Uh, at some point, the math, the checklists, the algorithms that powered those and the reporting mechanisms, all of which are automated, will then direct human action on the part of like our armed services, our intelligence community, our military and police um, to capture, interrogate, or in cases where neither of those can be the case, uh, be uh, readily affected to potentially strike with lethal force a person from a remote location, missiles, bombs, what, I don't know, maybe, probably, I mean, the whole point of this is that they don't use snipers, like, the, the conversation is, the statement is, the position is that we don't practice assassination, right? Um, but I think assassination people think of, and I'm and I'm leaning in behind the mic right here and making the 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 shooter's stance kind of taking position. It's it's like people associate assassination with snipers or some other you know someone who walks up to a uh, politician in a crowd and pulls out a handgun and tries to get off a, a shot at them or takes a shot at them from the audience when they're standing on stage. Um, those are things that. I think most folks associate with assassination. Um, we're using euphemisms for things and still achieving the same end result in many cases, which is the you know elimination of a target. The gist of this story, I think, that I'm taking away so far that I think is the running theme so far here, yes, we're talking about two individuals, one a U.S. national, one a foreign national, um, you know, one a U.S. citizen, one a foreign national, who both of whom may be or are being targeted by, by one of these, if not the big nasty American kill list, justifiably or not. And in the pursuit of them, justifiably or not, and many, many, many others, um, the number we don't know who are actually valid targets of you know our intelligence community um, our national security interests you know dictate many more people who are very either very much innocent or you know family I mean what to what level do we pursue justice with individuals and organizations, uh, you know, and, and, and even, like, whole cultures who we somehow have defined ourselves as 
in some way in opposition of. Um, you know, kids, babies, children and grandchildren of the real targets are being killed routinely everywhere. And this has been going on for something like 17 years now, continuously, just in this form. This is something that's been happening in some way, shape, or form for as long as we've been able to affect, you know, people around the world, which... So that's, you know, a lot of commentary to lead in. The point being, I think my... The reason why I wanted to share this story, the thing that scares me and saddens me the most is seeing people all around these supposed targets actually being the ones paying the price. No one has seeming protection. Uh, There's no due process applied that we can see that's remotely transparent, that's remotely accountable, that is knowable in our sphere. Uh, and you can hear the defeat in, a, you know, in my own voice as I try to even comprehend that and talk about that. You know, we live in a uh, time where this is, you know, this is what we call national security. Um, I mean... I don't think anybody's advocating remotely for, you know, full transparency of every single action that's taken on the ground everywhere in the world by any of the national powers. We don't even have anything that remotely resembles that. We, what we don't even have is something that remotely resembles an ability to highlight or single out any event, any offense, any aggressive action, no matter how egregious, no matter how wrong, no matter how much friendly fire was involved, uh, and really, you know, have effective tools for even asking the people, the real people involved, to stand and take any accountability for what transpires. Um... And yeah, a lot of innocent lives being lost. Which I can't help but think seriously affects many people's, many people's views of all of us involved on all sides. But, you know, we're the ones walking around with the biggest sticks, the biggest, you know, the, the, the largest capability, and we're exercising it seemingly everywhere all the time yeah all right so we were talking about ex gratia payments I'm, I'm wrapping it up I'm done Steve's done for now we're gonna get back into Matt Tybee's story here do we have a podcast we do have a podcast <laughs> that was crazy yesterday All right, so we're going to say, we're going to drop right back into that last paragraph and then keep on rolling. Condolence, or ex gratia payments, may be available for those injured and the families of those killed. 
a White House national security official was the person quoted that. The job outer family wasn't mollified by their condolence payment. In fact, when Faisal learned more about the drone program and how it worked, he was horrified. One thing that particularly troubled him was that Americans had begun to remove the human element from the assassination process. One of the few things known about the killed list is that it's compiled, in part, by algorithm. In 2014, former CIA and NSA director Michael Hayden said in a public debate, we kill people based on metadata. According to multiple reports and leaks, death by metadata could be triggered without even knowing the target's name if too many derogatory checks appear on their profile. Armed military age males, in quotes, with a link. Exhibiting suspicious behavior in the wrong place can become targets, as can someone, quote, seen to be giving out orders. Such mathematics-based assassinations have come to be known as signature strikes. When I learned about signature strikes, that was incredible, Faisal says. If the criteria is being armed or having a beard, that is everyone in Yemen. Desperate to bring attention not only to the injustice, but also to the ineffectiveness of the program, Faisal brought a wrongful death suit to the same DC district court that would later hear Kareem's case. At one point, the family even offered to drop the suit if President Obama would apologize. In public, that is. Not with a private stack of cash. There seemed some chance of this. Barack Obama, the engaging, sensitive, constitutional lawyer face of America during the years when the drone program vastly expanded, had apologized in similar circumstances before. He'd expressed profound regret, quote unquote, a link to that statement and a story about it. After a drone killed Warren Weinstein and Giovanni Loporto, an American and Italian hostages, respectively held by Al-Qaeda on the Afghani-Pakistan border. Faisal bin Ali Jaber wanted the same respect Obama had shown the two white Western victims. Your country is founded on the idea that all men are created equal, he says. If we are all equal, then he should have apologized to us too. But no apology came. Instead, Obama's Justice Department lawyers dug in and argued that the Jaber family lacked both standing and a legal avenue to question his decisions. The court, in the person of District Judge Ellen Huvel, agreed. Huvel flipped the Jaber's wrongful death complaint on its back in a chilling February 22, 2016 decision. 
Um, this article, guys, is just full of links, great links to, you know, other long-form stories on these key points. This is a link, in this case, to a document at a place called legal.com. And it is like a case white paper overview of Ali Jaber versus the U.S. It's like PDF. You know, yeah, this is totally like a, a... Talks about the political question doctrine, next friend standing, the legal standard. So it's interesting. They got, they got it all here. This guy really blows me away here with what he's got into this story. Citing the precedent of the Al-Awalaki case, Pavel agreed with the government. The court lacks jurisdiction to hear plaintiffs' claims because they represent non-justiciable political questions, which would require the court to second-guess the executive's policy determinations in matters that fall outside of judicial capabilities. As a result, the Jaber family flunked what is known as the political question test. This rationale, translated into English, goes something like this. The decision to shoot a Hellfire missile in the direction of not just the wrong guy, but exactly the wrong guy, in Yemen was made by the executive, for reasons outside any court's ability to assess. No civilian, in other words, could possibly have enough knowledge to judge the competence or efficacy of this act. The essence of Faisal bin Ali Jaber versus Barack Hussein Obama at all is that when we kill abroad, even by mistake, even in an undeclared war, this is foreign policy and therefore outside of judicial authority. This left the Jaber's claim non-justiciable, i.e., literally outside the reach of the law. I know. We all learned a new word today, you guys. Non-justiciable. Justiciability refers to the types of matters that federal courts can adjudicate. If a case is non-justiciable, a federal court cannot hear it. To be justiciable, the court must not be offering an advisory opinion. The plaintiff must have standing, and the issues must be ripe, but neither moot nor violative of the political question doctrine. And that is a definition from the Legal Information Institute from Cornell Law School. I will include the link to that definition in the show notes, as well, obviously, uh, of course, to this Rolling Stone article written by Matt Tybee, published on July 19th of this year, I think, just last week. adding that link right now to the definition justiciable for us so we've got it but yeah that's let's get back in there citing the precedent of the Al Awlaki case Havel agreed with the government court lacks jurisdiction to hear plaintiffs' claims because they present non-justiciable political questions. 
which would require the court to second-guess the executive's policy determinations in matters that fall outside of judicial capabilities. Right, to get to re-read that and really hear it this time now that we know what non-justiciable really means. As a result, the Job Adder family flunked what is known as the political question test. So yeah, so we read that. They can kill the wrong guy in wars that we, you know, haven't even declared whether we're there, you know, transparently to the public or not. Uh, and federal courts can't even rule on it at all, you guys, in any kind of meaningful way. It's, it's crazy. So it's a major like curtailing in my mind of the ability to check you know any other you know form of government's actions in any way when it comes down to it right so Even the author's disgusted with this word. <laughs> Non-justiciable. I think I'm saying it right now. This hideous mouthful of a word. Like so many exemplars of the War on Terror lexicon, sounds like it was clipped from the unreadable legalese of an iPhone warranty. Reminds me, of course, of our recent episode on Terms of Service. I think that was episode 42. Just scroll down, you'll find it. Um, the first seven minutes are really painful. Get through them, you can do it. This is how America's post-9-11 move toward authoritarianism has been executed. Without massacres or palace coups, but noiselessly, on paper, through years of metronome insertions of bloodless terms in place of once vibrant democratic concepts. We wiped out the Geneva Convention by creating the unlawful enemy combatant, a term that simply means a person not protected by the Geneva Convention. The war crime of knowingly killing civilians was long ago renamed collateral damage. This is all our, our whole list of, you know, fun jargon that we hear every day. Torture repackaged as enhanced interrogation, while kidnapping and warrantless detention was baptized anew as extraordinary rendition. And so on, right? There's a million of these. In the job out case, the courts upheld the ultimate authoritarian practice, summary execution, by shutting it away behind yet another semantic disguise, this one called political question. Not all of the judges went along with the ploy. On appeal in circuit court, a long-serving jurist named Janice Rogers Brown made a highly unusual move. 
She wrote the majority opinion striking down the Jaber's appeal, but then separately also wrote a blistering criticism, writing, Our democracy is broken. She continued, The spread of drones cannot be stopped, but the U.S. can still influence how they are used in the global community, including, someday, seeking recourse should our enemies turn these powerful weapons 180 degrees to target our homeland. Brown pleaded with the government to establish a clear policy for drone strikes and precise avenues for accountability. We did no such thing. After Jaber, the drone program only expanded allegedly fanning out to an American citizen in Bilal Abdul Karim. Brooklyn, New York, the early 90s. Daryl Lamont Phelps is standing on a street corner, holding a basketball in one hand and a bottle of old gold in the other. He hears the call to prayer from a nearby mosque. Masjid al-Taqwa on Fulton Street. He watches men going in and out. I said, wow. Every time I hear that call to pray, I see these guys coming and going, he says. They must really get something good out of going. Kareem doesn't go in that day. He's suspicious. He'd previously had a girlfriend who pushed him to get religion. She said, look, why don't we go down to the mosque? We could become Muslims. He laughs, and I was like, wait a minute. Sounds like there's an ulterior motive here. She wants me to marry her. So I guess he, did, didn't, he didn't go for it right away. Uh, sometime later, he and the girlfriend break up, and Kareem finds himself reading the autobiography of Malcolm X. Impressed by Malcolm's personal turnaround, he finally goes into that mosque and takes the faith. A former indifferent college student who had spent more time chasing girls than building a career feels he finally has direction. But he quickly realizes that much of the religion is, quote, wrapped up in the Arabic language, so this is his impression, right, and decides to go abroad to learn it. He goes to the Sudan first, landing at Khartoum. He remembers stepping off the tarmac in the desert heat, it was like a dragon breathing on me, he says. And at two in the morning, I said, that must be the exhaust from the plane. So he lands at two in the morning, and it's, yeah, that hot. I kept on walking, and it didn't stop. Wow. Kareem moved to Egypt from Sudan, and mostly remained overseas from then on. Soon, with fluent Arabic and an aptitude for moving freely in the more metaphorically hot zones in the Middle East, he found a career as a freelance fixer, producer, and reporter for TV news companies from all over, from CNN to BBC to Al Jazeera to Sky News to numerous others. But over the years, the devout Muslim says, he began to bristle at his assignments. He felt like he was continually being asked to look for sensationalist, caricatured angles about the Muslim world and seek out, quote, bad guy terrorist stories, 
to the exclusion of all else. So he formed his own network. And more and more set his own assignments. The resulting reported has led some to describe Karim as a jihadist propagandist linked to that, um, who creates sugar-coated portraits of the Chechen warlords and Al-Qaeda heavies who give him remarkable and, to some, suspicious access. To say Karim is a controversial figure is an understatement. His work on CNN's Peabody-winning program, Undercover in Syria, led to criticism of the network. Journalists Max Blumenthal and Ben Norton ripped CNN for working with Karim, whom they described as, quote, a top al-Qaeda propagandist. Poo-pooing Karim's charming children's television show host demeanor, they quoted a pseudonymous Syrian rebel as saying, Karim was not just a sympathizer, but a full-fledged member of al-Nusra, the al-Qaeda-affiliated Syrian Islamicist group. Karim, they said, even has a nickname in that part of the world, American Mujahid. Not everyone agrees, however. One journalist tells the tale of a potential interview with an al-Nusra figure that was scuttled because the interviewee rejected Karim. The terrorist group wanted their own cameraman. His OGN reports sometimes do feel like straight-up rallying cries for Muslim fighters. And in an interview with the Times, Karim declined to name who funds his network. But he denies any improper relationship with the terrorists. He says he often finds himself pleading the other way on the ground, arguing America's case to Muslims. Too many people over here have a similar stereotype that all American people want to see Muslim blood flowing in the street, he says. And I have to say, hey man, it's not like that. Some Muslims, in parentheses, you know, uh, have the idea that because America is a democracy, that means that the majority of the people support these presidents and leaders who launch these attacks that kill innocent people. Therefore, all Americans are accountable. Yeah, I feel like, sadly, um, the innocent people well below the level of decision makers, policy setters, um, or anyone resembling those are the ones who do have the most accountability because they have the most exposure to like risk of retaliation or you know what have you from our now enemies you know maybe they were already our enemies maybe we made them our enemies I don't know <coughs> So it was, he says, 
with a longtime al-Qaeda leader named Abu Firas al-Suri, a native Syrian who was reportedly the leader of the al-Nusra Front in 2013. Karim says that when he interviewed al-Suri, he pushed back on that old familiar line about America. I'm an American. I know how the political system works, he says. I went over to his house for reasons that had nothing to do with filming, and he wanted to sit and talk about the American political process. We sat for about two hours, and we argued and ate watermelon and drank tea, literally. And then he said, Bilal, when are you coming back again? Kareem believes it was things like this, I guess visits, you know, uh, that put him on the kill list as a signature strike. Yeah, maybe if you go, you know, meet with someone under any auspices other than, oh, I'm going as a journalist to write a story and then, you know, publish exactly what I, you know, did with that interview, etc. Now you're going and hanging out, you're, you know, yeah. It's interesting. Alright, but so that's things like this that put him on the kill list as a signature strike, which earlier in this Rolling Stone story, when they first bring it up, they take you straight to a link on what a signature strike is or isn't. It's easy for somebody back in Washington just to say, I can place his cell phone right there with Abu Firas al-Suri, he says. On April 3rd, 2016, al-Suri was killed in a drone attack, along with his son and at least 20 others. A few months later, Karim's own alleged troubles with drones began. October 29th, 2013. Okay, so this is, yeah, this is... A, a Pakistani school teacher named Rafiq Ur-Rahman brings his nine-year-old daughter, Nabila, and his 13-year-old son, Zubair, to Washington. It's a different family, you know, a few years before. The little boy testifies to the House of Representatives about a drone attack that killed his grandmother. My grandmother was nobody's enemy, says Zubair. I no longer love blue skies. In fact, I now prefer gray skies. Drones do not fly when the skies are gray. It's a powerful presentation. There's only one problem. Only five House members are there to hear it. The American lawyer who has arranged this testimony, a Saginaw, Michigan native named Jennifer Gibson, is infuriated. She can't believe the number of no-shows. Worse, after the hearing, one of the five members sends his aide to approach the little girl, Nabila. Gibson allows herself to get excited, expecting that he will apologize to the family. No such luck. Instead, the aide reaches down, hands the girl a dish of ice cream, and walks away. I was upset, 
disappointed. All of that. Gibson remembers through gritted teeth. They couldn't do the apology. The ice cream incident stuck with Gibson for years as she fought, often without success, to draw public attention to her country's assassination regime. Unhappily, the sandy-haired, bright-eyed lawyer probably knows more about drones than any civilian alive. I'm a walking, talking database, she sighs. Ironically, Gibson has the academic pedigree of a future president. She earned a master's from Cambridge via a Gates Cambridge scholarship, one of the world's most exclusive academic prizes. From there, it was on to law at Stanford, where she first began working on the drone issue and worrying about the logistical problem of trying an extra-legal program in court. I could see even then that the law alone might not be able to help. Gibson moved to London after Stanford and has been working at Repirive ever since. She spent years trying everything she could think of to crack the drone program. She testified before British Parliament, the European Parliament, and even the U.S. Congress with the Er Bremen family. Finally, after sifting through media reports and leaks from anonymous Pakistani, Yemeni, and American officials, she discovered an odd pattern. For instance, in October 2010, news leaked that Fad al-Kuso, a top al-Qaeda leader and suspect in the USS coal bombing, had been killed by a drone strike in Waziristan. Two years later, he was reported killed again in a strike in Yemen. Gibson found that cases like Alcuso's, who actually died in the Yemeni strike, that's the later one, were not the exception but the rule. She looked at 41 different kill list targets and found that each man died an average of three times before actually being killed. Okay, here's where this gets ugly. In one extreme case, the CIA reportedly killed 76 children and 29 adults solely in attacks targeting Al-Qaeda heavy Ayman al-Zawahiri. They never got him. He's the current head of Al-Qaeda. Yeah, I've heard his name. In all, she found that as many as 1,147 people may have just died, like, just died in the attacks targeting the 41 men she studied. How many others are there, right? The victims were disproportionately children. In attacks targeting 14 men in Pakistan, 142 children died. To me, that almost seems like that's almost you you could almost wonder if it isn't perversely by design in a way to make all the remaining adults hate you and want to continue to wage war against you even as they age and have their own children taken away from them 
wouldn't that be a way of like seriously depopulating people if nothing else like war of attrition is that what that is it's horrible I don't even I don't know like that's supposed to be the opposite of military strategy right We're supposed to target valid military targets not kids I thought I'm just an idiot civilian Yeah, and attacks targeting 14 men in Pakistan. 142 children died. So this is Gibson still. She issued a report about this. She won a few headlines, but still not much changed. Then she heard about Kareem's case. As a lawyer, she quickly realized the implications. Only four drone cases had ever reached the U.S. courts. This was only the second, after Al-Awlaki, in which the plaintiff was an American, and he wasn't even dead yet. Right, the other one was that American tourist who was killed by accident, along with the Italian. Gibson recalls thinking, this is one of the rare cases where you've got an individual who's saying, wait a minute, don't kill me yet. Please don't tell me I have to wait for them to kill me for there to be any sort of accountability. The race against time aspect put her and the reprieve team in a legally unique bind. There have been death penalty cases before, but never one where neither the crime nor the sentence is known to the defense. It's like Minority Report come to life, she says. Let's um, puff on some of the last of that Oregon Silver Haze. Just a little bowl here. That was our strain of the week um, last episode. And really, since this is just a part two so close in time, time, let's, we'll just, we'll keep rolling with the Oregon Silver Haze. Really enjoying it. It's been a good strain. Um, you know, I'm whacking out those sativas here in the summertime. It's all good. Love it. Minority report come to life. I mean, this is, yeah. We're targeting people who maybe haven't done anything yet is the, the thing. And then on top of that, while targeting them with deadly force, innocent people, babies, are dying. I don't know. I don't know what kind of sympathizer it makes us to talk about that in the light of, like, wow, ouch, that's horrible. Why do we do that? Can we not do that, please? Can we stop doing that? I don't know what that makes me. But. Gibson, who had also prepared the Jabair case, suspected that a simple constitutional claim might fail. Even with an American plaintiff. So she and her team decided to try a different tactic. 
in the human rights litigation equivalent of going after Al Capone for tax evasion, they pushed Kareem's claim by citing the Administrative Procedure Act. Link. So, see, this guy, I love him because he's the same way as me. You go look at my show notes, you're going to see something for everything we talk about. And his whole, and, and my show notes end up being millions of links to references. Not all just the stories here, but, you know, terms that we go over, new words that we discover, etc. Right? Um, sometimes documents when I have them and can share them. Um, so, Matt Tybee, talking man. Rollingstone.com. Digging it. That's the Administrative Procedure Act. The 1946 law that specifically grants the judiciary the right to review the actions of federal agencies. So they're trying to, you know, not get caught out by non-justiciability here. We're going to pursue something, some kind of something in terms of accountability via leveraging the Administrative Procedure Act, right? Gibson realized that even as judges have been running sideways away from the drone issue for years, they've also routinely forced federal agencies to renew review decisions about more mundane issues pertaining to people who may pose terrorist threats, like whether they should be allowed a bank account or be put on a no-fly list. people who may pose terrorist threats, right? So these aren't outright criminals per se. We don't know in many cases who these people are, or we think we, we think we know, but we don't know enough to apprehend them in many cases, restrict their movement, stop them from doing anything, prosecute them. You know, oh, well, you got to let them do their thing so you can, you know, watch them and wait till you get to the bigger fish. Well, I, I, you know, I don't know. You know, you're drone striking these guys <laughs> in a lot of cases. All right. Courts have been making these types of decisions for 20 years, she says. The reprieve drafted brief wouldn't force a judge to rule on the overall legality of the drone program. Al Gibson's team all Gibson's team wanted was a hearing. To her enormous surprise, they got one. It was very unusual for us to get an oral hearing, she says. We were excited. Back in Washington, May 2018. We're almost there on this one, everybody. Such an important story. I mean, May 2018, Tara Plochoki, the local attorney engaged by Reprieve to represent Kareem, is arguing their case. Judge Collier seems sympathetic, for Kareem anyway. I understand your thing about constitutional rights, she says, addressing Plochoki. But I don't understand why you argue that Mr. Zidon may have constitutional rights. He's a foreign person. She pauses. 
Everyone in the courtroom understands her meaning. In italics, well, fuck him then. Zidon, from that moment, was toast. As for Kareem, the judge keeps wavering, stuck on what she describes as political question, political question, political question. Even with constitutional rights, I'm not sure what I can do, the judge sighs, clearly feeling trapped. Judge Collier is in an unenviable spot. She either has to take on an intractable executive branch that has spent years massively investing in a global assassination program, or she has to put her name on a federal ruling that would formally make Swiss cheese of the Bill of Rights. It's the Sophie's choice of legal dilemmas. Plachoki tries to give Collier an out. We're not asking for the court to revisit drone policy. We're not taking a run at the drone program, she says. Plaintiffs just want an opportunity to be meaningfully heard, just as if they were designated for economic sanctions or told that they couldn't board a flight to Cleveland. Plachoki suggests the government could just review the record and look to see whether they'd made a rational choice. The judge parries back. Wouldn't that mean just asking the government to review data it already has? If they're using metadata to make these decisions, she argues, the metadata will show he's been spending time with enemies of the United States. But it won't show their journalists. How would they know, Collier asks. I mean, I hate to tell you, they wouldn't know. Metadata doesn't say, oh, and by the way, this guy was born in Michigan. Totally. Collier turns to the government lawyer, Elliot, to see if he wishes to respond. He recoils from Pluchoki's argument, like she's asking for the overthrow of the free enterprise system. Asking the court or the government to reassess a determination that they allege has already occurred, that they are authorized for legal action, that is quintessential political question, Elliot cries, voice shaking with intensity. So he's the one who, you know, well, he fully agrees it's a political question. The judge shifts in her seat so that the political question becomes non-justiciable, right, everybody? The judge shifts in her seat, pauses, and hypothesizes what a decision ordering a review would be like. Some kind of one-way communication that simply asks the people who make these decisions, air quotes, she doesn't ask who they are, to consider new information. Okay, so she's like appealing to the lawyer for the government here, Elliot, who represents hundreds of agencies. Go back and listen to the last episode if you haven't already, everybody, because that's the only way this is going to work for you. You don't have to go interview Kareem. Collier offers Elliot. Elliot said, 
he'd have to ask his client, quote-unquote, again, not named. We don't know what, how many agencies there he's there representing. And continues to imply in a stern voice that any judicial order of any kind would be an assertion of judicial authority over the process. <clears throat> I'm not actually asking to change the process, Collier says. And I understand that I don't have jurisdiction in the first place. So here she concedes it. This is not good news for Kareem. A federal judge has just said, out loud, that she's not sure she has jurisdiction over the assassination of an American citizen. The hearing closes shortly after that with a decision pending. Jumping back slightly, March 2017, Bilal Abdul Karim walks through the remains of a mosque in the village of Algina, not far from Aleppo, link to this coverage. On March 16th, two Reaper drones fired at least four Hellfire missiles into this structure, as well as dropped a 500-pound bomb, killing 56. The U.S. Army Central Command explained that the building had been, quote, assessed to be a meeting place for Al-Qaeda, and that they did not hit a mosque, but a building 50 feet from a mosque that is still standing. A day later, the Pentagon released a statement saying it had struck senior al-Qaeda terrorists and militants, with no credible evidence of civilian casualties. Because they were vaporized? I don't know. Ultimately, they admitted they may have killed one child. Kareem's report from Algina is a single five-minute take in which he walks through what's left of the building. I went and I filmed it all in one take and put the lies to the lips of the Pentagon, he says, wanting to prove that the attack was not only on a single structure, a mosque, but that the people fleeing the scene were also targeted. Okay, so I watched that video, of course, uh, and he's got, you know, a nice, like, like they point out here, uh, one cut take walkthrough of what definitely looks like, you know, was probably a mosque or, you know, a big open church uh, prayer area. Um, and then a lot of damage to that building, a lot. Um, and uh, I was wondering what kind of damage a 500-pound bomb does. Um, <clears throat> and then uh, a bunch of like yeah like pockmarks in the road there's no longer any blood he's probably there a couple few days later i don't know how many days behind the uh, strike he was there i think he mentions the the date of the actual strike um but uh yeah on the 16th right so he was there like uh, just a few days later but it was already kind of washed away they washed away the blood um, you know, and I guess the pockmarks could have been like if it was like horses, heavy horses, but they weren't everywhere, right? It was like in one area on the road, like over a hundred feet away from the mosque. So I don't know if that was an airburst kind of explosion that then like rained shrapnel down on everybody. He characterized it as landing 
but also raining down shrapnel. So I, I would think it like maybe exploded and that constitutes landing in a sense because it, you know, explodes 100 feet overhead or whatever and then, you know, is like a big, big grenade um, kind of thing and, and would hit a bunch of people, you know, for, or, a hundred, you know, a, a wide target, whatever it is. Um, but I think those are anti-personnel kind of um, bombs. Uh, and that's what that kind of looked like. That was maybe that kind of damage uh, there. Uh, so, and, you know, I mean, he's got a little bit of uh, feeling in his voice. He's obviously, you know, looking for uh, some sort of understanding of, you know, how that maps to the uh, reported strike, which was supposedly not on the building. And, you know, that there was no credible evidence of, you know, uh, having hurt civilians when... Um, you know, clearly that was, uh, you know, probably a mixed group in there of ages, at least. I, I think in a lot of cases, it's a lot of men, you know, are in those gatherings for sure, but a lot of kids too, right? So, and not all of them are jihadists, no matter what this, you know, might be twisted to look like. Uh, by people who would like to believe that, so. Um, and he says here about the damage on the ground, you saw the pock marks on the ground outside the mosque, he says. On the ground outside the mosque, the video shows a, ro a road dotted with tiny craters. Along with softball interviews of Islamic warrior heavies like al-Suri and Chechen warlord Muslim Shishani, such reports from bomb sites are a theme of Kareem's work, which he understands doesn't make him a very sympathetic figure for many Americans. Some people would look at me, he says, and they would say, look at this guy. He's got a beard. He ain't never said nothing good about democracy. Maybe he really is one of them. So you know what? I think I'll feed him with the long handle of the spoon and wait and see what happens. I guess that means you can whack him with the spoon when he misbehaves. Publicly, at least, Kareem has insisted that he personally renounces terrorism and that killing civilians has no basis in Islam though he strongly implies that if Americans don't make some kind of effort to turn off the increasingly indiscriminate campaigns abroad, the tables may someday be turned. Let's just talk mathematics, he says in response to the Washington Post story about how quickly drones can kill the, quote, sons of bitches in the Middle East. Do you really think that you're killing people faster than they can grow? For everyone that you kill, what about all of his family members? He goes on. Is it unreasonable that at some point, somebody here is going to get their hands on something that can do some real damage? If there's anything you can put into this article, I would be so keen to ask Americans that. Listen, are you okay with the acts the US government would carry out over on this side of the divide? Are you okay with that happening in Chicago, Miami, Los Angeles, 
in New York or in your hometown. If you're okay with that, then don't worry about what's happening to Bilal Abdul Karim. Karim's chilling speech shows why this case has import for all Americans. For our sake, not just his, we need to know what the case against him is, if there is one. Does our government believe Karim has already committed terrorist acts? Does it believe he's planning to commit them in the future? Or do they consider his on-the-ground news reports to be a form of aiding terrorism? The implications of the latter alone would be mind-blowing for the press and for the First Amendment. Or is the situation even dumber than that? Is Kareem's would-be death sentence merely a matter of one telephone number grazing another too many times? How does such metadata analysis work? How arbitrary is it exactly? Earlier this year, news came out that the Pentagon was using Google-developed artificial intelligence technology to analyze drone footage. Wow. If the military is using the same kind of pattern recognition program to look for terrorists that internet platforms employ to hunt for shoppers, expect plenty of erroneous assassinations in the near future. Is the case against Kareem based upon a mistake, or is it based on something more substantive? The answer to that question represents the difference between killing a terrorist and creating one. We need to know if we've become the very thing we ostensibly created the drone program to combat. A secret authoritarian sect that confuses murder and justice. Killing individuals from the sky, says Faisal bin Ali Jaber, just cannot be the right way. Meanwhile, the one with constitutional rights waits with his lawyers to see if Judge Collier can get the people who make the decisions to tell him, Ali Ali Oxenfree, that he's not on a list and it's safe to come out. or not. Anything is preferable to not knowing. On the evening of Wednesday, June 13th, Judge Collier hands down a stunning decision. It seems like an unprecedented victory for Plachoki, Gibson, Kareem, and the Constitution. Judge Collier's ruling essentially is that the government can't kill Bilal Abdul Karim without at least giving him a chance to complain about it in court first. Wow, that's really stern. <laughs> this, poor, this poor judge. Due process is not merely an old and dusty procedural obligation required by Robert's rules, she writes. Instead, it is a living, breathing concept that protects U.S. persons from overreaching government action, even perhaps on an occasion of war. 
and one of the great legal understatements ever, Collier adds, Kareem's interest in avoiding the erroneous deprivation of his life is uniquely compelling. As for Zaydan, she ruled he had no standing because he didn't sufficiently prove he was on the list. As was clear from the proceeding, he was doomed, and non-Americans will continue to be fair game everywhere. But she veered into troubling language, even for Kareem. Kareem seeks only his birthright, a timely assertion of his due process rights under the Constitution to be heard in italics before he might be included on the kill list and his First Amendment rights to free speech again in italics before he might be targeted for legal action. This is just the beginning of what will surely be a fight for the ages. Civil cases in America can last years and few are this complex. The state has a few options, any of which could still end up with the drone murder of Americans pre-sanctified. It can go ahead and show that it properly followed its own secret guidelines, including that Kareem is a terrorist, and still direct lethal force at him. Or the government could appeal Collier's ruling with a higher three-judge circuit court panel and the suit could still be dismissed. If they do that and win there, Gibson, Kareem, and his team will be right back to where they started, staring at the world where an American citizen cannot walk into a courtroom to contest his or her own extra-legal execution. But for now, even this limited victory is hugely significant. No lawyer has ever even made it past the front stoop in a court challenge to the drone program before. This is uncharted territory, both for America and for the history of law in the war on terror years. It's a crack of daylight, says Gibson, in a program that hasn't had any. A century ago, Franz Kafka wrote a parable about a man who comes to a gatekeeper, begging for entrance to the law. He's obsessed with questions of guilt or innocence, but the gatekeeper never allows him past. And all he learns in the end is that the heavens are indifferent to his most important questions. This bleak vision of humanity's future has come to life in our modern American dystopia. As American citizens, we are born promised entry to the law. But the door is sometimes closed now. And what appears to be behind it a giant death sentence factory seems intractable, ridiculous, and error-prone. It's trying now to turn on its own. Will it succeed? Matt Tybee, RollingStone.com July 19th, 2018
The amount of violence, crime, and horror which occurs every second, let alone every year, is psychologically impossible for a single human mind to process. Which is why our podcast is called A Myth and Mercy. Two friends, I'm Cassandra. I'm Alice. We aim to bring attention to obscure, little-known cases and topics with a focus on marginalized victims. Come and find us on iTunes, Google Play, and other major podcast platforms and social media, and through our site at ofmythandmercy.com. I'm screaming through the whole promo next time. All right. Thank you to Of Myth and Mercy for dropping by with their promo. Really cool little podcast with a great angle on the true crime genre. Uh, so as I promised, we were going to, you know, come up out of that big painful dystopian sort of place we've been in for the last couple of hours here and uh, lighten it up just a little bit to um, wind down the episode and uh, so much so that I'm going to hold off on one of the other stories that I was going to include this week and put that depressing shit next week uh, as well and uh, because sadly it'll keep So, I've been having fun with something, uh, this is a little bit local, this next last little story here, and so, you know, but I think, uh, let this be a great opportunity to, um, you know, either recognize the, the opportunity it affords for you to create something that is perhaps a little bit like this, uh, in your part of the world, or maybe seek out and find, um, maybe resources that may resemble this that may already exist and if so um, boy I'd love to hear about them uh, from any of you who are listening uh, this is a, a website I found a friend of mine uh, Taylor Hurley posted this on Facebook uh, a few weeks back and uh, they're a great uh, Seattle local longtime member of the bicycle community scene around here um, messenger community um, and uh, just, you know, really, I found this a fun post and really neat. So I've been, I've literally had this tab open on my uh, desktop for weeks now and have been clicking around on, on this map that we found that's called liminalseattle.com. All right, so as opposed to subliminal, this is liminal, you know, it's like has an implication of like a weird layer, you know. So this is a map, it's a crowdsourced map of, like, the bizarre, the paranormal, the enchanted, the haunted, the just plain strange here in the Pacific Northwest. So it's curated by them, though. They do, uh, you know, they accept submissions and then apply their own sort of, you know, uh, quality, you know, read on it, take their own read on it, how good did someone do with this submission and is it worth inclusion on the map and then by their you know unknown I guess <laughs> um, you know uh, process they'll decide what makes the map right so I actually submitted something from my area um, from my neighborhood here 
um, and we'll get to that in a minute. But um, so let me read you a little bit about about them so that you know you can get their their pitch about this uh, really cool resource. Spooky things happen every day all around us, even right here in Seattle. Instead of brushing these peculiar moments and bizarre encounters off as chance or mere coincidence, what if we talked about them, mapped them, and tried to decode the message? Is there a specific place where you've seen fairies, ghosts, Bigfoot, time travelers, extraterrestrials, ultra-terrestrials, crow conferences, sentient lawn computers, lanyarded ogres, broccoli wizards, etc. So they're covering it, you know, get a lot of leeway there. Send us your story, and we might include it on our map. They have a link to Liminal Seattle there and a form. I, I found the form. The, the map is really cute. It's uh, kind of a grayscale topographical. It's zoomable. It's, you know, powered by Google Maps. Uh, they have really cool custom icons all over it. Some of them are frogs. Some of them are skull and crossbones. Some of them are stopwatches. Some of them are animals. You know, and you can hover over them and get, like, uh, a, a light, um, you know, a meta tag on most of them here. Um, memlem. The memlem are strong here. What's a memlem? Nobody knows. That's down in uh, not far from Alki. So um, here we go. Crow attack. Also uh, a little bit south of Alki here. Uh, maybe Duwamish uh, watershed. Dive bombed by a pair of crows, likely guarding a nest. I offered them a couple of garden fresh strawberries. Hopefully they'll see me as a friend. So you know the threshold for making the um, list. You know doesn't have to be utterly ominous and, and nightmarish. You, that was a pretty innocuous encounter. Um, there's a lot here. There's, you know, a couple hundred entries already. Here's an interesting icon that looks like an alien craft, um, maybe beaming something up here is the icon. This is in the Newcastle area. This entry says Newport Hills, 2006. Roughly 12 years ago, I was getting out of a car in the later evening when my mom called to me while pointing to the sky. There were three triangular craft overhead. They were low-flying, black, unlit, and completely silent. That was submitted by Shannon. And uh, so, the, you know, it's, uh, gosh, just so, so much fun. There's all sorts of places to potentially go explore. Um, you know, there's you could go and try to visit some of the spots that um, others have noted here on the map. Maybe you look and find in your own area. You know, I see here right here in Renton, we have a school district ghost. My father was a janitor at the school district building. Many times he had a ghost that would move things, often set off the automated paper towels and other fun or mischievous things. Nothing bad. A couple times I had stopped by for a late dinner or lunch with him and had seen an apparition of an older gentleman with a brown suit and bowler hat. At times he would tip his hat. Other times he would just fade away. 
there we go. So this is this is closer to the type of observation that I, uh, you know, submitted to add to the map. Um, here, also not far from Renton, the Waterworks Gardens. Uh, the entry says, interesting energies abound. Plus, it's located on Monster Road. Come on now. Everybody from around here knows about Monster Road. And it really is. It's an interesting and uh, neat little, uh, cool little hill up on Monster Road, too. Um, it's like a really steep, oddball hill right in the middle of Renton, um, for whatever reason. Um, Renton Tequila. So, yep. Water gardens are there off of, like, the Boeing campuses and stuff. It's, uh, yep, 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 very interesting. Uh, that's a spot I've been to before many times. Bike rides. It, it's uh, adjacent to one of the bicycle paths down there. So, Liminal Seattle. Uh, I will, like all our stories, always include a link to it in the show notes. The submission that I um, included, I failed to copy and paste it anywhere before I hit submit, so I lost my uh, form, but it was to report that the entire corridor up here at the top of the hill in Skyway, um, primarily on Cornell Avenue, our main arterial up and down the, um, that connects like the lower hill to the upper hill, uh, it and the park that it would run through if the road continued that way but is terminated sort of up against the borders of Skyway Park uh, feel very strange and interesting at night many times on my walks with my dog in the neighborhood I've experienced you know wild fogs in season and out of season uh, and these are the things I reported in my submission uh, unusual sounds unexpected wildlife including deer coyotes and white owls uh, as well as a great many many crows uh, I commented and observed that at night up here in particular it feels particularly otherworldly and that the new strange weirdly bright LED street lights on Cornell in particular add to rather than detract from this feeling of oddness in the neighborhood. Uh, the feeling extends into the park and the green belt leading into and out of the park and may also extend to the north to Lake Ridge Park and the ominously named Dead Horse Canyon. So we'll see uh, if our submission for Skyway to get Skyway added to the map of Liminal Seattle is successful. I hope it is. Love to see us here on the map. Uh, I think maybe we'll keep Liminal Seattle close to hand in case we decide we need to go make some field trips to any of these sites. Owls, not what they seem. Oof, over in Des Moines. Look out. Crow encounters. Looking like Burien, Des Moines. Uh, I could just go on. I, I love it. I've, I've been looking all over on this map. and uh, Maybe I'll be able to submit again on future occasions when specific events present themselves. Experiences that we can share. It's a ghost on Mercer. 
Okay, yeah. <laughs> LiminalSeattle.com. Uh, check it out, you guys. You'll love it. You'll love it. You'll absolutely love it. Um, put it on your list if you're coming to visit. Uh, okay, well, that about wraps it up for another, you know, longer one. Um, we're cu- closing in on almost an hour and a half by the time I get done blabbing at you here uh, in closing. And um, what have I got to say? Everything that was true yesterday is still true today, and I'm excited about collaborations with my friends Nate Lopez and Jamal Harrington and Kate Carlson Carlson coming up before the end of summer here. We're all going to sit down somewhere soon. Um, they're all local to me here. Uh, Top Tree as well. Welcome on board, Top Tree team. So stoked to be working with you guys. Um, I think one of the things we're going to be doing first is uh, maybe working on, like, I think some... It might be a hat. It might be a T-shirt. It might be... I mean, you know, I already have the Tee Public shop and stuff like that, but um, I was thinking of not like a trucker, but more like a dad hat kind of scene uh, thing, like an embroidered cap, just something simple um, that we can maybe make. And maybe, you know, we're talking about doing that as a collab with the Top Tree brand. Um, I hope everybody's checking them out and following Top Tree. I really do. Um, you guys better be following Top Tree for me and, and liking and commenting on his posts and letting him know Baked and Awake sent you. That's That, that would be the way to help me out there. Um, and uh, yeah, looking forward to collaborating with Top Tree and enjoying them, bringing them on board, participating in the podcast as an active supporter of the show. Uh, Hempfest is coming up again soon, uh, as I said, and we did a big episode on that last year, and I'll try to do even more with it this year. Big episode. It was one of my first episodes. I think it was episode three, actually. Hempfest 2017. Goldilocks of Seshcast. Excellent um, cannabis chill uh, episode chill chill themed podcast uh, philosophical uh, monologues uh, by my friend Goldilocks. He's going to be out here in Seattle. Um, I've been listening to his podcast since it started, and uh, he's a successful radio DJ uh, back east as well. Um, he's having a great time in radio broadcasting, but also doing Seshcast as his private project and his creative outlet. And uh, we're going to hang out at set at uh, Hempfest 2018. So look forward to that. Um, all right, everybody. Uh, check out my friends over at the Damaged Goods Network. So damagedgoodsinc.com is where you can find not only my podcast, since we're baked and awake as a member of the Damaged Goods Network, uh, you can find Damaged Goods the show. You can find Daddy Issues. You can find Beta Testing. You can find the very funny Claytime in the Basement, as well as the newest member of the family, Needless to Say. Uh, all really diverse and different shows than mine and uh, certainly worth a listen Uh, love it if you'd find those folks on Instagram and on Facebook where they variously hang out on social media give them a follow too you know Um, I'm showing up on their shows I showed up on the most recent episode of Daddy Issues which just dropped yesterday as well. So stoked about that. Hung out with Shade and Lily Bongwater. Did Strain of the Week with them on their show. And talked about, like, you know, personal relationship stuff. So some of it was pretty, you know, we had a good few laughs. And I was blushing over here on my end uh, more than once. Uh, But uh, hopefully 
had a good time and gave the the girls a good time for um the time we spent together um i certainly enjoyed it and uh they have a, a great show where you can learn a lot and it's really different than baked and awake so check out daddy issues um all right let me know how well how you liked it let me know how it sounded uh kenrick regan spoiler country homie hooked it up uh last episode two episodes ago uh heard me asking for the same kind of feedback and helped me out man just back behind the scenes and that's uh that's what we love that's podcaster to podcaster support of the first order right there um but any audience member can support me in the exact same way by simply giving me feedback of any form any time they want talk to us at bakedinawake.com Follow me on Baked and Awake. DM me on Instagram. I'll talk to you there. I, I, I answer DMs continuously over there. Um, and always looking for more. You know, tell me what you want to hear on the show. Tell me what I forgot about that I said I was going to do that I haven't done. <laughs> tell me, uh, you know, just keep me abreast of cool and interesting developments near you. And there's every probability that I'm going to end up talking about it on the show so uh look forward to hearing from you as always all right well uh you guys are gonna smoke your indica you're gonna do shit anyway if it's summertime and you're staying active and you're smoking sativa you're gonna stay calm anyway you're gonna get back to your day here now and i'm gonna let you do that i'm gonna give you an outro of another tune from our friend frequent musical provider, Auntie Luode. Until next time, everybody, we'll see you soon.